Lord Jesus, I reiterate what Sean said just a moment ago in his prayer. I pray that you would give us the uh, ability to hear what you want to say to us today. When we come before you, when we, when we see your holiness, uh, when we confront your majesty, we are struck by our unworthiness. And so we confess our sin, as we did earlier this morning. Lord, we also know that because of what Christ did for us on the cross, we are made worthy in Him. His righteousness and His righteousness alone makes us worthy. And so we rejoice in that. And we pray today that as you speak to us through your word, we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would make in reality in our day-to-day lives, what is true in eternity and in our position before you. We're righteous, but we pray that you would transform us into the image of Christ as a result of interacting with your word today. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. So I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you have a Bible, turn with me in it to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. I'll meet you there in just a second. And while you're turning there, uh, I just want to thank Sean Little for speaking for me for the last couple of weeks. Sean did a great job. Would you show your appreciation to Sean? Some of you may remember that before I left town, we were in a series that was, you know, we're preparing ourselves for this move into our new building. And we're going to finish that series next week. We'll continue the series today, finish it next week. And the series has been called, as you can see from your program, What Makes a Powerful Church? And as you can see from the graphic uh, on the program or uh, on the bumper video that you were watching uh, a little while ago, the main thing that we've been challenging you towards in this is to drop this sort of Western individualistic mindset that many of us come to Christianity with uh, that says, you know, uh, church is all about me. Uh, Church is all about me, what I want. Uh, I come to church, I go home, I don't really interact with anybody else. That's not what church is about. If we're going to accomplish the vision that we have as a church, we have to have a a different mindset, a we mindset, a collective we mindset. And you see that reflected in our vision statement. Would you read it with me? We're going to put it up on the screens. If you know it by memory, just say it by memory. The vision of City Church is to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So along the way, in addition to kind of challenging you to drop this individualistic Western mindset, we've been talking about some of the elements of a powerful church. We've talked so far about the importance of the gospel. We've talked about the importance of having a love for the city of Evansville. God loves the city of Evansville. We've talked about that. And then we talked uh, a number of weeks ago about the importance of community. God did not save you to be independent. God rescued you. God saved you to be part of a community. We talked about that. This morning I want to talk about um, another important element of a powerful church, and that is a sense of mission. A sense of mission. As excited as I am to be moving into our new building in just a couple of weeks, and I am very excited about that. I want you to know that. But I'm also acutely aware that it would be so easy for us as a church uh, to sort of settle into the mindset that we're finally home. Like we sojourned for a while down at the Crescent Room at Milestones and we've sojourned for a while here at the old National Event Center, Center setting up, tearing down each week. But now we're 
we're home. And that's a problem if we have that mindset. Because the church is not a home. What do you do, uh, what do, you do when you get home at the end of the day? What do you do? You tend to get real comfy and cozy. You put your slippers on and you get your jammies on and uh, you put your pipe in. I don't know if any of you do that, you know. But <laughs> you pull a blanket around you and you settle in and you rest. No, 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 no. This building that we're about to move into is not our home. Home is heaven, okay? Home is heaven. This building might be our home base, but it's not our home. And I'm going to show you this morning from this passage that we're going to look at in Isaiah that God has given us a mission, and he's given us a message for that mission, and he's given us a motivation uh, for that mission. A a mission, a message, and a motivation. And I want to start reading uh, from verse 1. We'll start with this idea of mission, and then we'll we'll read from verse 1, okay? Verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty... Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the riches of fare. Now, I'm going to stop there, and I want you to just write this down in this principle. When God invites you into relationship with Him, He simultaneously propels you into mission. When God invites you into relationship, He simultaneously propels you uh, into mission. Now let me break this first point down for just a moment. Let me start with the first half of this point, the invitation. Now did you notice that this passage begins with an invitation into relationship? That's what these first few verses are all about. Come, uh, all you who are thirsty, come. Come, that's what he's saying. It's an invitation into relationship. Now, what I think is interesting is the metaphor that God uses, that uh, Isaiah is speaking for God, and he uses this metaphor of thirst. I think that's a fascinating metaphor. What does he mean by that? Why does he use this metaphor? It's actually a very uh, popular metaphor, a very frequent, very powerful metaphor in the Bible. Have you ever been, like, really really, really thirsty. Have you ever been really, really, really uh, thirsty? Maybe you worked out really hard and you lost a lot of sweat. Maybe you're working outside in the heat someplace, uh, working for a long time, and you got really thirsty. What happens when, when that happens? Well, your body's need for water begins to break into your consciousness, right? You begin to feel it. And it's like, I'm thirsty. And you start to think, I've got to get something to drink. And And I'm dying of thirst. But you're not really dying, not yet. But you think you're dying. If it goes on, though, you start to think about your thirst more, don't you? Like when it first starts, it's just a little, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm thirsty, whatever. But as it goes on, it it becomes, it's like a shouting louder and louder to you. And you begin to think, I'm really thirsty. And if it goes on even longer, you start to do anything, like suck on rocks. You'll do anything to try to get water. And, And if it goes on even longer, you would have mirages of water. You'd be like, there's water, but it's not really water, right? You run here, you run over here, you run any place you get, thinking, that's water, but it's not water. You've never been that thirsty but you know what i'm talking about right and the search for water becomes all consuming if it goes on like that you'd literally kill for a drink of water 
How many of you are getting thirsty right now just as I talk about this? You're like, I got to go get some water. Isaiah uses this metaphor of thirst because he wants us to realize that our souls thirst as well. And I'll bet a lot of you didn't even realize that. That our souls thirst as well. Just as the body craves for water that it was created to need, the soul thirsts too for what it was created to need. And what it was created to need was the presence of God in it, filling it up. But you know the story, you know how it goes. Uh, Man has been separated from God. Uh, The human soul has been empty of God since Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And just as your body's need for water sort of breaks into your consciousness, in the same way, the soul's thirst for the God, uh, the soul's thirst for God, breaks into your conscious experience in some way, in the form of a longing or something. So, like maybe, maybe, maybe you feel lonely, and it's very possible that that's the the soul's longing for God, kind of, kind of breaking into your conscious experience. Maybe, maybe you feel like something is. Uh, missing in your life, but you just can't identify what it is. You just know that there's something missing, or maybe there's this uh, longing to be important, to feel significant, but but you don't, and and you just you know, like you get this, and you want to you, you get that feeling, that longing, and you want to satisfy your soul's thirst. And so, what do you do when, when you feel that? What do you do? Well, some people, you know, people handle this in all kinds of ways. And there's no point in being coy about this. I'm, I'm going to just, you know, at the risk of offending some of you, I'm going to tell you how some people handle this. Because people interpret this longing in many different ways. And I just, let's, let's get real about this. Some of you, especially younger people, some of you feel that longing and you think sex will satisfy it and so you make a booty call. That's right, you heard me say it, a booty call. We're getting real here. This is what happens, all right? And you text someone and you say, how about coming over and let's do Netflix and chill. But you don't really mean Netflix and chill. You're making a booty call and you know that, right? Some of you, some of you try to drink your soul's thirst away. It's like, I'm going I'm to go, I'm going to go to a bar and, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to just, or I'm going to buy some, some alcohol and I'm just going to drink my soul, my soul's thirst away. That's what you try to do. Some of you go to Schnooks and you try your best to eat your thirst away with a gallon or more of Briar's Fudge Marble ice cream. <laughs> Some of you starve yourself when you feel that. It's like you interpret this soul, your soul's longing as a need for more control. And so you starve yourself. You're anorexic. That's how some of you handle it. Some of you get uber busy and you try to work the soul's thirst away. But the problem is it doesn't, like it never goes away. None of that makes the soul's thirst go away. And the longer it goes on, the more conscious that you become of this feeling that something is lacking in your life that you just can't seem to satisfy. And you get more desperate and more desperate and more desperate. And I, you know what? I want to just speak to men for a moment. Specifically, I want to speak to younger men uh, for a moment. Because I want you to know that this desperation is what a midlife crisis is. And I always think it's important to know what you're going to face in the future. It's important to know it early so you can prepare for it early, okay? And so you'll know how to respond. 
What a midlife crisis is, is desperation. You've ignored your soul's thirst for so long, and you try to work it away when you're younger, and you try to success it away, but the thirst won't go away. And you start trying, excuse me, frantically, excuse me, to satisfy your thirst. And so you run here and there, and you start seeing mirages that look like red sports cars, and and women 20 to 30 years younger uh, than you with daddy issues who laugh at your jokes and think you're Prince Charming, only because they haven't lived with you long enough to know that you're really just a frog with money. (laughs) But you're thirsty. But you're thirsty. And so you destroy your family because you're so desperate. That's what a midlife crisis is. It is sheer desperation. Show me a man in midlife who leaves his wife and family for another woman, and I will show you a frantically desperate man. No matter what he might say, no matter what he might look like on the outside, on the inside, he is frantic. It is a frantic longing of his soul for God that he interprets as a need for something else. That's what a midlife crisis is, men. And young men, you need to know this. So that when you get there, you can accurately interpret what this longing of the soul is. That it's not for a woman. It's a longing for something more. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a longing for a relationship with God. And so when the Bible uses this word thirsty, I want to give you, I want to to just give it to you on the screen here so you can write this down because this metaphor occurs a lot. When it uses the word thirsty, it's referring to People who are ruled and driven by unsatisfied desires. That's what it means to be thirsty. To be ruled and driven by unsatisfied desires. Why are their desires unsatisfied? Because they have no relationship with the living God. Their souls are craving for what they were created to have and need. And Isaiah is extending an invitation on behalf of God to all of humanity here, all of you who are thirsty, all people, all humanity, whites, blacks, Americans, Syrian immigrants, straight people, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans people, rich people, poor people, white-collar people, blue-collar people, you, me, everyone, because we all thirst for God. That's what this is about. It's an invitation to everybody, because we all thirst for God. But I also want you to notice, this is the last half of uh, the Uh, of this point, I want you to notice that at the same time he invites us into relationship, he propels us right into mission. Look at verse 3. He says, give ear and come to me, hear me that your soul may live. Okay, this is more of the invitation, right? He's still inviting. Give, you know, he says, give ear, come to me, hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. That's more invitation too. Come, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this relationship. See, I have made him, David, a witness to the peoples, a leader and and commander of the peoples. Now watch this. Surely you will summon nations that you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. I wish I had more time to go into this whole thing about uh, David. Uh, I don't. Let me, just say, let me just say this, that earlier in Israel's history, God had made this covenant, a promise. That's, when you see the word covenant, that's what it means. It's a promise. 
to a king of Israel by the name of David of this very uniquely intimate relationship between God and David. It was made this promise that we're going to have this very intimate relationship. And as a result of that, David became a witness to God's faithful love to all of the nations. But he says, I will do the same for you too. I want to have that same unique intimate relationship with you. But as soon as he says that, he says, surely you will summon nations that you know not. In other words, I want you to be a witness to the nations too. You come into this relationship with me, I've invited you in, now I'm going to propel you out at the same time. I I, I want to summon you, I want you to summon others into this unique relationship. That's the simultaneous propulsion in the mission. I invite you into a relationship with me, and I want you to bear witness to the life-changing, world-changing relationship with me that changes you. And this, I want you to understand that this happens all through the Bible when people enter into a relationship with God. He invites them in, and he propels them out all at the same time. So when Abraham is, is invited into a relationship with God, back in the book of Genesis, God says, as soon as he invites him in, he says, now get out of your country, your familiar comfort zone. Go. At the burning bush, when God calls Moses into relationship, he says, now I want you to go to Pharaoh. Later in the New Testament, Jesus says to his followers, as the Father sent me, so I send you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I came on a mission, and you're going into my mission to make disciples of people. See, an invitation into relationship always includes, as part of that, an invitation, a propulsion into mission. Why? Why does it include that? Well, it's because... When a person finds what their soul has been thirsting for all of their life, when they've been changed by something, when they've been transformed by it, they they can't contain it. You have this inner compulsion to tell other people about it. On a smaller scale, on a very smaller scale, over the holidays I kind of got immersed in this uh, Netflix documentary. Uh, I won't tell you. I won't tell you what it is, but I've been telling the staff about it like every day. I've been texting them about it. I've been emailing them about it. I've been saying, you got to watch this. I mean, they get emails from me, you know, at various emails and texts at various times of the day and night saying, you got to watch this. Have you watched it yet? You got to watch it because it was like fascinating to me. That's on a small scale. But think about it. When you, man, like when you, when your soul is when every dimension of your life has been changed, when you finally find what your soul has been longing for, thirsting for all of your life, boom, you want to go out and you want to tell everybody that you know about it, come with me. you got to do this. you got to try this. Drink here. That's, that's what you do. See, we're, as a church, we're, we're moving into a home base for our ministry. We, we are. But God hasn't called us home yet. We have a mission as a church to witness to the city of Evansville and beyond about the life-changing power of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and how it completely transforms every dimension of a person's life. And so when we move into our new place, we're to see it as a home base, but not a home. We don't put on our slippers and our jammies and get cozy. We go out from our home base everywhere to places no one else would go, to people no one else would go to. We take risks. We live dangerously to tell people that God loves them and can transform their lives. That's our mission. 
I was telling our staff and elders the other night that years ago, I, it was, I can't remember the name of the song, can't even remember who sang it, and in this one particular line, it was a quote from somebody else who'd said it. I don't, I don't know who it was. But the line went like this. It stuck with me for probably 25 years. Some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells, this guy said. But I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. That's, that's, what we, that's what City Church is to be about. It's not about, you know, oh, real cute, cozy chapel bells. I'm not, I'm not against chapel bells. You understand that, right? But it's, it's, it's like not home. It's not cozy. It's a mission. A yard from the gates of hell. That's what we're to be about as a church. That's our mission. Okay, mission. We got that. God calls you into a relationship. It also comes with a propulsion into mission. Okay, here's the second thing I want to talk about, and, and it's the message of the mission. So the mission, and then what's the message of the mission? And I, I'll summarize it for you. The message of our mission is a relationship with God is only possible by grace. You, many of you know that, but I, I want to I reiterate this, and I want to develop this thought uh, as a great reminder for some of you, and for some of you it's the first time maybe you've ever heard it. A relationship with God is only possible by grace. Look at verse 7. Uh, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. Uh, These verses speak of a conversion. Do you see it? So it's like forsake his way, that's a conversion uh, because the way is your behavior. Then he says uh, forsake your thoughts, That's, that's even more of a conversion. Uh, because that's not just change your behavior and your practices, it's, it's change the way you think. Now, here's the problem. If you just read those verses and you didn't pay attention to the larger context, uh, it would be very easy uh, to think that all conversion is about, all Christianity is about, is changing your thoughts and changing your behavior. And frankly, that's all a lot of people have been taught that Christianity is, right? It's just about behavior. Don't do bad stuff. You know, obey the Bible, do good stuff, don't, don't do bad stuff. Which, of course, because many people have been taught that Christianity is just about behavior, uh, that's what makes many people think that there's really no difference between all of the world religions. Because they're all out to do the same thing, make you into a better person. That's, that's what many people think about Christianity. It's just out there to make you into a better person. Change your behavior, change your thoughts. But you've got to pay attention to the context. Look back up at verse 3. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. The word soul in Hebrew, uh, it's not so much referring to the, like some people think, well, you know, it's referring to the immaterial part of me versus the physical part of me. That's not what it's referring to. It's, when, the, when, when the Bible uses the word soul, the Hebrew word soul is referring to the very essence of your life. It's, 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 it is who you are your soul. So like it's, it's the essence of your life as opposed to the parts of your life, like your behavior or your thoughts. Soul is the sum total of who you are. And so what we need to understand here is that the change in your behavior and the change in your thoughts that he's talking about here is a result of an inner conversion of the soul because it's the inner life that controls the outer life. So it's the inner life that controls your behavior. Okay. 
And so what God is saying here is this, that you're not converted unless you're converted in the soul. Uh, you are not converted unless you're converted in the soul. Like you can change your behavior all you want, you're not converted. You can change your thoughts all you want, you're not converted. You're not converted unless you're converted in the soul. And the biblical idea of conversion really has two parts to it. The first is that God must convert what your soul seeks. And that's really what we've been talking about in our first point just a moment ago. Everyone thirsts, everyone is longing for something that will satisfy them. God has to convert a person so that they understand that what they seek is ultimately Him, that nothing else will satisfy that longing of the soul. So God has to convert that part of you so that you understand what your soul seeks. That's the first part of conversion. But there's a second part of conversion. God must also convert how your soul seeks what it seeks. How your soul seeks what it seeks. And let me explain that. If you go back in the first three verses again, you'll notice that there is this contrast between how the soul seeks what it seeks. Okay. There's two different ways. And I want to read it again to you. We'll put the verses up on the screen. It says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Okay, now here's the first one. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, now here, now let's, let's look at the second part of that. Let's, or let's look at the contrast. So one group of people have no money and they can buy it without cost. Then there's this other group of people. It says, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches of fair. Okay, do you see the contrast? You see how that works? On the one hand, he says, you've got these people who have no money. And he says, come to the waters and come and buy and eat. What is that? Well, that's grace. That's grace. These people have no money. They have no buying power. They, they, can't, they haven't earned anything. Okay? They can't pay for what they need. And yet God is saying, come and drink and eat without cost to them. On the other hand, when he asks this question, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? These are people who have money and they have buying power. And they think that they can labor and work to get what satisfies the longings of their soul. But he says it doesn't satisfy. Why? Because what your soul longs for can only be obtained through grace. Do you know what the last thing that Buddha said, according to his scriptures, do you know what the last thing that Buddha said was? you know what it was? He said this, strive without ceasing. That's what Buddha said. Strive without ceasing. Keep working. Keep striving. Okay. On the other hand, the very last thing that Jesus said as he hung on the cross was, it is finished. Buddha, strive without ceasing. Keep laboring. Keep working. Jesus, it is finished. And the word that he used when he says it is finished is the word, it's the Greek word tetelestai. And tetelestai essentially means I have accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. I've done all the work that needs to be done. It is done. It is finished. Okay? There's no more striving to be done. Buddha, keep, keep striving. Jesus, no more striving. No more striving. Because so few people, frankly, even so few Christians, 
understand Christianity, many people think that becoming a Christian means making a vow to clean up their life. And maybe you're like that. You, you know, maybe you said at some point in time, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll tell you something. This is what I said when I first became a Christian. Uh, the night that I knelt down next to my bed, I didn't understand Christianity. I mean, I understood what I knew from what other people had told me, and I thought it was just about cleaning up my life. And so I knelt down next to my bed, and I said, Jesus, be my Savior. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give, and I'm going to do good things, and I'm going to live according to the Bible, and I'm going to surrender. But I want you to listen to me now. If you seek God like that, you're not seeking God. You're trying to be your own Savior. You're working, you're laboring for your own righteousness. What God is saying here is that unless you not only begin to seek me, but seek me through the way of grace, rather than your moral performance and labor, you're not converted. That's the message. And that's a radical message, and that's radically different than every other religion in the world. Uh, Author and pastor Tim Keller once wrote this. He said, irreligious people don't repent at all. Religious people only repent of sins, but Christians repent of their wrongly placed righteousness. Do you understand what that means? That means that Christians repent of their moral performance, of trusting in their moral performance and their work and their labor for their righteousness. Christianity recognizes that the only way to be right before God is by believing moment by moment in the work of Christ, not in your moral performance or labor. Our message, you see, is a message of relationship with God through grace. What your soul longs for can only be obtained through grace. That's what makes Christianity distinct, you see. That's the, that's the message of our mission, and we must never, as a church, mistake that. That's what we are about as a church. We're about salvation, relationship with God by grace, not by labor. You understand that? This is what conversion is. God must convert what your soul seeks and how your soul seeks it by grace, not by your goodness, not by your performance. That's the message of our mission. And when we deviate from that, we have lost the gospel. Finally. Message, mission, motivation. What's the motivation to be a part of the mission that God calls us to? And if you're a regular here, it won't surprise you that the motivation is the cross of Christ. 800 years after Isaiah wrote these words that we've been looking at today, Jesus claimed that he was the fulfillment of this very passage. Jesus, who was a descendant of King David, mentioned in this passage, was having a conversation with a woman at a well. It was a natural place to talk about thirst. He asks her for a drink of water. She's surprised that Jesus, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan, and a woman, for a drink of water. Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It's ironic if you think about it. She asks, How can you ask me for water? And Jesus asks, How can you not ask me for water? And then just a few verses later, Jesus says to her in John chapter 4, verse 14, Whoever drinks the water I, will give, I give them 
will never, what's the word? Thirst. Ring a bell? I will give them. Did you notice that? He didn't say, I will sell it to them. They could pay for it. They ask, I give. Living water, no cost. Again, does that ring a bell? Yeah. He's referencing this passage in Isaiah 55. Now, here's the question. Why could Jesus just give away this living water that every soul thirsts for? Why? Why could he do that? It's because at the end of his life, as Jesus hung on the cross, the New Testament tells us that his next to last words were these. John writes it like this, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am what? Thirsty. The reason that Jesus could offer living water at no cost, the reason that Jesus could be the fulfillment of Isaiah 55, is that Jesus became thirsty so that we would never have to live thirsty. He was separated from his father so that we would never have to be. His longing was unmet so that ours could be met. He paid the price for that living water that he can just give away to us. Your soul and mine were thirsting for something that we needed but couldn't have. The presence of God in our souls. And we couldn't have it because of our sin. But Jesus took on our thirst and paid the price for our sins so that our souls could once again be filled with the presence of living God, living water. And that's the motivation, you see? It's the cross of Christ. That's the motivation. Jesus on the cross did all of this for you. Not because you were such a good person. Not because you had you know, cleaned up your life. Not because you started praying or, or, or you started giving or surrendering or you stopped doing something you were doing before. Not because of any of that. Jesus did it by grace. And when you get that, when he did it for you, when you get that he did all of this, that he suffered this on the cross for you, not because you deserved it, not because you'd earned it, but out of grace, when you get that, you want to be a part of his mission. You want to tell the world about it. That's the motivation to be a part of his mission. Now, I'm going to close with this. We, you know, you think about, well, okay, I want to be a part of his mission. But I'm not an evangelist. I know some of you think, well, I'm not an evangelist. Or maybe some of you think, I'm not a teacher. I, hey, I'd like to be part of his mission. I'd like to work with the church and be part of this mission. But I'm not an evangelist. I'm not a teacher. I get that. We get that. But there are things you can still do to be part of this mission. This is why we have these positions like, like, uh, it's, like it's why we have this first impressions team. When, when, when people come to our church, we want them to go, <clears throat> we want them to be like blown away by how, just how we welcome, by the grace that we demonstrate to people, whoever they are. And so our first impressions team is about that. It's about just saying, glad you're here. Whoever you are, whatever you look like, wherever you came from, we're just glad you're here. We need a lot of people to be doing this. And look, those of you, and I see some of you here, who are under 40, guys, we need you, right? We need you to be part of this team. Because, like, there are young people out there that, you know, the first thing that they do when they come to church is they ask, is there anybody here like me? And... Um, if the only people that they see are people, you know, like Robert Getty, who's so old, if they, if they only see people like Robert, uh, 
Uh, or Alan Clark, one of our elders back there, who's just so old. If that's, if that's all they see, then they're going to be like, nobody here's like me. But they've got to see young people like you in this thing. So we need some of you to stand up. And then, and then like, um, we need some people to be a part of our parking team. Look, you're going to get cold, you're going to get hot, you're going to get rained on, you're going to get snowed on if you're part of our parking team. But look, you know, downtown parking is kind of confusing. We need people that are going to direct people to where, like, parking lots are and things. And here's the thing, here's the cool thing. You get uh, a walkie-talkie if you would be part of this team. (laughs) And who does not want a walkie-talkie? We know that not everybody's a gifted evangelist or gifted teacher, but you can be part of the mission here. You can. And after service, we're going to have a short meeting. And like anybody who'd be willing to be part of First Impressions, stay for a few minutes. It won't be long. It'll just be short. Anybody who'd be willing to stay parking team, be a part of our parking team, uh, stay. And like you might not even, you don't have to make a commitment even yet. Just stay long enough to hear. And um, we want to talk to you about that. And we'll do the same thing again next week. But we want you to stay today if you're willing to be a part of that. Be a part of the mission of City Church. We have a great mission. Be a part of it. If God has called you into relationship, He has also simultaneously propelled you out into the mission of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Be a part of that mission. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm you as living water. For those of us who have been invited in and who have drunk of that living water, Lord Jesus Christ, um, we feel compelled to be a part of telling other people about it and about you. Lord, we confess that there are many times that we trust in our own righteousness, our own performance, Lord, would you forgive us of that? And Lord, often that is made most clear when we sin. We feel ashamed. We want to stay away from you. We don't want to engage in relationship with you because we feel so unrighteous in that moment. And in that moment is when we need to proclaim, thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that my performance does not dictate, determine my standing before you. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for that. We thank you for that. Lord, for those that are maybe here today that have never tasted of the living water that their soul longs for, Lord, today, in their chairs, in the privacy of their seats, would you just, Lord, would you just awaken them to what their soul longs for, you. And it's a relationship with you by grace. It is not about what they've done, how good they've been, how bad they've been. It doesn't matter. That's that's not the issue. The issue is trusting in you, Lord Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is about. And Lord, would you just make that clear to them in a way that they've never heard or understood that before. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your love for us. Thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. And it's in your name that we pray today. Amen.